The reading is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jordan. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all here this morning. If you're new, we are glad that you are here. Uh, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. I have a couple of announcements before we call uh, Trey up uh, for this morning's message. And uh, if you just extend me a little bit of grace, uh, these announcements have absolutely nothing to do with each other. And so the segue is going to be really awkward, and I'm sorry about that. But I am an awkward guy anyway, so that's all right. But um, First one's very sad. Um, many of you uh, I know in this congregation know Chuck and Hannah Keels, and Hannah, uh, they've been married a couple of years, uh, but Hannah's been around our congregation for nearly 10 years, and uh, a big part of, not around our congregation, but a big part of our congregation. And some of you know that um, she's been very sick the last several years and has been uh, battling uh, various forms of cancer and battling really hard. And uh, she finally succumbed a couple of weeks ago. And so um, we're going to have her uh, memorial service here in this room this coming Friday, December 16th at 2 o'clock. And Chuck, uh, her husband, wanted me to make sure that everybody knew and everybody was welcome to be here uh, for that. We miss her very much. And uh, it'll be a celebration of life and also just memorializing her life as well. Uh, the other announcement is today is Commitment Sunday. We've been uh, building up to this for weeks and weeks and weeks. If you are new and you have no idea what I'm talking about, we have all kinds of information at our Connect Desk uh, today. Uh, anyway, uh, we are adding on to this property, building a new sanctuary, investing in the future, not only in our congregation, but also in our community and in the kingdom of God. And so today is the day that we're uh, asking to find out uh, what it is that everybody believes that they can give over and above their regular giving toward this uh, initiative. And so uh, we have these envelopes, which uh, we've already been receiving these envelopes, and I know people have, some people have come already with these prepared, but um, if, if you forgot, we have the envelopes uh, ready to 
receive what your pledge is. Uh, if you don't want to do the envelopes, though, you can go to our website, go to the giving section of our website, and there you'll be able to uh, work out your pledge uh, and your giving there as well. Or you can also scan the QR code uh, in the card that's in, in, in the seat back in front of you. So those are our announcements today. Looking forward to that. And now, if you will please welcome with me our next gen pastor, Trey Fraley. Thanks, Frank. I feel like they could do better than that, but you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. So he is not only the pastor of fundraising, but he's the pastor of fundraising. So I'll let him talk a little bit about it. Uh, if you don't know, Frank is a dad, so. That's why he's able to bust out those dad jokes. <laughs> uh, he's actually um, right. I am the pastor of fundraising and raising fun. This past, uh, not for the whole, that was a joke. Friday, we actually had a fundraiser for our youth ministry, and uh, it went really well. Thank you, everyone who contributed and came. We had our kids serve dinner to people who just came to have dinner. And we had a sponsor who put, who, thank you to the sponsor, paid for uh, the, the food so that everything people said, hey, instead of paying for a meal out, they can just pay for this. And then I got to spend hours with some of our students, which was really great. And that was probably the more uh, valuable part of the night than it was the money that we raised. But we did raise enough money to send multiple kids to camp and to keep costs down for other people who were paying for it. So it did, yeah, it is really wonderful. Uh, it was valuable time. And I have to say, I'm just really, really, really encouraged with our church. We, are, we have a generous loving, giving church, and uh, I am honored to be a part of this community. So thank you guys for that. Um, as Frank said, I am Trey, uh, Next Gen Pastor. Uh, today we're going to be in Matthew 2, so open your Bible to Matthew 2. Um, this Advent, or Christmas season, we like to use fancy words at church. So this Advent, which has nothing to do with air conditioning, we're not adding vents anywhere. <laughs> Advent just means coming. And if you're like, I don't know any of this, I don't, I'm not regularly in church, like we like to use words. Advent just means we celebrate the coming of Jesus. And so this Christmas season or the Advent, the coming of Jesus season, uh, we've been going through at our church through uh, the different perspectives of people in, in the account of Jesus' birth. And it's been really fun. Yet last week we got to go through the shepherds who are hardworking people but not super valuable. And Frank got to bring us through this wonderful message of our, of our work. And then uh, next week we're going to go through uh, Herod and his perspective. This week we're actually going through the magi or the wise men. And this week and next week kind of go together. They're, they over, A lot of overlap. They go together. So a lot of the stuff I say today Frank's going to bring up to, uh, next week. So uh, try and be here for both of those so that you can really um, hopefully be shaped and formed by both of those perspectives that are brought from Scripture. Uh, today we're going to be talking about basically the inspiration for the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Has anybody heard that? Yeah. We Three Kings of Orient. I'm not going to sing the rest of it. <laughs> but uh, many of us have heard of this, and what inspired that is this story in Matthew. It's not in any of the other gospel accounts. So this is the only story. So the information that we get today is the only one that Scripture brings us. So we have to recognize, if you uh, develop your perspective on things that are about God and, and like what happened from what just people tell you or from just songs that you hear, but you don't check it yourself in the, in the Word, you will find that you will develop wrong perspectives on things. And so this morning, I suspect many of us are going to unlearn some things that we've previously thought were the case. 
Um, I, and I'm excited about it because this means we get, as God's revealed himself in his word, we get to be a little bit uh, more understanding of who God has revealed himself to be. And I think that's a wonderful and good thing, things that you could spend the rest of your life devoted to, never fully getting there, and still that would not be a wasted life. Be totally worth it. Uh, let me pray before I just continue talking. Um, God in heaven, this morning we are here not um, to uh, look like we're somebody that we're not. We're not here to um, just do uh, a, a thing that checks a box so that we can feel good about the week and expect some like good karma or something like that. We're here because we do believe that the living God became man and we want to devote our whole life to him, to you. Um, Lord, let me not treat any of this excellent material in a defective way. I pray that you would, through me, uh, communicate your message, that nothing that is not from you would be said. I pray that you would give us soft hearts to receive your message, and I pray we would be moved and changed to your glory. Um, I pray that you would help us be shaped into a community that if you were to take us tomorrow we would have nothing but joy in our hearts to see you face to face. And Lord, I'm charged with that difficult job and weak and needy I go to this task to prepare our congregation for that. Um, as all of our pastors do every week. Um, so Lord, I pray over this next uh, time that we have, this whole hour that we've got of worshiping you. Lord, I just pray your spirit to be here in a, in a unique way. Um, I thank you for the presence that he has here. Help us welcome him well, and I also pray, Lord, that you would make us excited for what your word has to say. You didn't have to give us a book that reveals yourself and tells us who you are. We could have aimlessly be trying, be trying to figure out who you are and, and what you need from us or what you want from us. You don't need anything from us. But Lord, you've told us, you've given us the way to life, um, and I thank you for that, and we find that in the book. So as we get to, through your word, worship you with your people, I pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew 2, let's start. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so many of us know he was born in Bethlehem, which is of the southern part of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, this guy who was not supposed to be king, but put in place by the Roman government at the time. Uh, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Totally not ambiguous. Nobody has any questions as to who they, they're just wise men it is ambiguous. That's sarcasm. I'm not as good at it as Frank. Um, I, I'm not actually. Um, but these wise men come from the east to Jerusalem, not to Bethlehem where Jesus was born. They come to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? As if this is news to Jerusalem. Why are people who are not God's people coming to God's people to tell God's people God is here? That's weird. It goes on. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now that's also very unique and, and different. We saw his star. Okay, so they're looking to the sky. So we're going to get to this star thing because that's everybody's question, right? Like what is the star? How does it, in a different, it's a new thing. How does it arrive? Was it just a light? Was it this or that? We'll get there. Let's start first with kind of unpacking who are these wise men? Because it is kind of ambiguous. They just say wise men from the east. doesn't say what country they come from. doesn't say what their position is. Well, the word used, uh, so we know that Matthew was written in Greek, in Koine Greek. Uh, the word used is actually magos, 
it's the, the singular form, but it's masculine, and then it's in specifically the word is magoe. And magoe is the plural form, masculine, of a specific name of, of people who are magi. That's where we get the word magician. But they weren't like pull rabbits out of a hat kind of magician, although that would be cool, I'm sure. But what they were uh, were advisors to kings. They were not kings. In fact, we didn't even have terminology of kings, like three kings or whatever. We didn't have that until the third century. So it was never actually kings. It's just, and it was actually an office that was uh, held in Persia, east of Israel. Wise men, magi. Uh, they would use astrology, which is not just astronomy. Astronomy is like the study of the stars and stuff, not the weird one. Astrology is the weird one. Hey, I see different things aligning, and so that means things are going to happen. That was them. And this was like a really prestigious, like really important, really trendy thing that the kings, uh, specifically in Babylon, would use as advisors to them. They were thought they could have been very wealthy, um, and it was unique, though, that these are the people, these like pagan people who use like weird things like the horoscope folks, these are the people that God's using to announce his coming to Jerusalem. Very weird. Like, that should catch our eyes and be like, what? That shouldn't be it. You would think it would be like a prophet from the Old Testament, somebody, somebody like that who's like a Jew, like of God's people. No, he doesn't use one of them. So we learn, okay, magi are not kings. They're advisors to kings. Um, they use astrology, religious texts. And we know that they, it was a masculine and plural text, so we know they're men. And we also know that there's just more than one. We don't know that there's three. In fact, uh, history, tradition of the eastern part of Christendom, so that would be like what's now Istanbul, but where uh, Constantinople was and the eastern part of the Roman government that moved east, their history, what, a lot of what the Eastern Orthodox Church came out of, their history was that there was actually 12 wise men. That's weird. Most of us would be like, well, there were three. I've seen the nativity scene. There's three. <laughs> but the western history, the tradition is that there were three because there were three gifts and we know that only one person can carry one gift so there must be three <laughs> wise men because there are three gifts. No, if we actually read the scriptures it says that there were just male plural wise men and many scholars think well there actually had to have been an entourage. If they came from Persia, which most scholars, I also agree, I wouldn't say I'm like I'm some crazy scholar, but I would agree with them. They came from Babylon because in Daniel it talks about Daniel instructing the Magi in the ways of the Lord, that they would know the one true God. So we know that there's history. We also know in Babylon, there's already a, like a, a group of Jewish people that still live there from the Babylonian captivity. That um, they would, all the people there would have been familiar with the Jewish prophecies that there's going to come a king out of Israel who would have everlasting peace from his reign. They know this. So it makes sense that they would come from there. They're from the east, but they could have been from Syria, could have been from Babylon. We can't say distinctively, but what we do know is that they're plural and that they, so there's more than one, that they were men, and there was probably an entourage. I would guess there's definitely more than three because if you just travel 900 miles with three people in that day and era, it would have been really hard to carry all your stuff, and it would have been really hard to have protection and stuff like that. And if you're advising kings, I'm guessing you wouldn't just go out like, willy-nilly, like you would probably have some of your, the king's soldiers with, with you. So if you think of when these people came to Jesus' house, there was probably a bunch of them. 
that changes the perspective there. But the importance of this information is this. This is what I want us to get. That's why I've taken all this time to explain this. These people were important people, not from Israel. So we wouldn't expect them to be the ones to bring the announcement to Jerusalem or that they would be the ones going to praise and worship Jesus. Um, the other thing is that they were looking in the sky. I can almost guarantee you that horoscopes and astrology and stuff in Israel was a very unpopular thing. It was like illegal to consult mediums and like witches and all that kind of stuff. And that would have been part of it. I can guarantee you, none of, nobody was like looking to the stars and saying, Lord, when will your Messiah come? Nobody was doing that. But they were doing it in Babylon and God somehow used them. So they looked to the sky and they wouldn't be the people we would expect. And uh, as we move on, let's jump to verse three. Uh, what, what happens? So they come to Israel. They're asking, where's this king? And then in verse three, it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Well, that makes sense. He's the king. He's going to lose his throne. But it doesn't stop there. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. That's, that's weird. Jerusalem should be really happy. The king, our king, that we, the Messiah is here. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he's asking them, okay, you guys know where that's supposed to happen. These, these guys who aren't even Jewish are coming up here and asking where this king is. You know where he's supposed to be born. Where is he supposed to be born? Well, he's troubled. Of course, he's troubled. He knows he's not from the line of the right, rightful heir to the throne. But all the people of Jerusalem are troubled. It could either be that the leaders of like like maybe the Pharisees and Sadducees, the leaders are troubled in Jerusalem because they're going to lose some power. Or maybe the people, all of Jerusalem, are really nervous and troubled because Herod will do some crazy things and to try and keep his throne. You would think Herod would be like, oh no, if this guy was prophesied, I wouldn't pick a fight with him. But he's not smart. So, um, and you might think, why would people actually fear what he would do? Was he really that wicked and cruel? And yes, he actually killed his, one of his wives, Maramne, um, one of his ten wives. So just lady killer, literally. And uh, kills his wife, Maramne, and his two sons he had with her because of a disagreement. And this was such a like, big deal that it even reached Caesar Augustus. Many of us know, have heard that name. Maybe you've seen some movies about him. I don't know. Caesar Augustus even coined a saying that said it would be better to be Herod's pig than his son because of this story of him killing his wife and his two sons. This guy was wicked, bad news, not a good deal. If you told me, if I was living in Jerusalem and you told me the king is here and I knew that he was going to kick Herod off his throne, I would have been like, yes, where are we going to see this guy so that we can worship him? That's not how they responded. We have to hear that this was weird, that they didn't respond the way that we think that they should have. They were troubled. Why would they be troubled? That's a unique response, regardless of, of whether it was Pharisees or all the people. Instead of being thrilled on the arrival of the Messiah, they were troubled. What an odd and sad reaction. Um, I think this happens with us, too. The same, whatever the thing it is that made them troubled, that same thing is in us. It's not just because we live 2,000 years later that it's not in us. It's the same. We're humans. It's the same in us. When Jesus shows up in our life, and instead of being excited for what is actually best for us, considering all his loss for the sake of Christ, actually best for us, we are, if we're honest with ourselves, we're fearful of losing the things that we hold dear. Jesus is dangerous to my control. 
Jesus' danger to my comfort. Jesus is dangerous to all the things that I would say are valuable and give me satisfaction in life. The fact is, Jesus demands everything for those who would follow him. Everything. All of your life, all of your things, even your life itself, come after his glory. And this is good for us. We're afraid, though, to truly to devote ourselves to him our whole lives because it will be uncomfortable and potentially we could lose the things that we hold dear, our health, our wealth, our prosperity. We're the kid in a nasty sandbox making mud pies, unable to even imagine playing at the beach. When we think that wealth or health or prosperity could be what would bring us joy or satisfaction. If your joy is found in that, you'll have joy, but it will, it will not be the most joy that you would have. You tell that message of being willing to follow Jesus, being willing to give up your wealth and health and prosperity. You have to be willing. You tell that message to people and they're going to be troubled. Many of us pray for us to be healthy or for the people we love to be healthy, and it's good. We should. And many of us are not healthy. Many of us are, many of us are not. And this is a tough pill to swallow. You're telling me I'm supposed to and commanded to still have joy in Christ when I am not healthy. Yes, because Christ is the source of true joy. Your health is not. Your loved ones that you love are wonderful, and the hard thing is, the truth is, they aren't the source of your joy. Christ is. And we'll get to it later, but you do have to labor for that. It's a gift, and we'll have to labor for it. It's not like something that is just easily given. If it were easily given and easily attainable or easy to have, easy to have joy, we wouldn't be commanded to be joyful always. We'll get there, but I'm getting ahead of myself. You tell that message to people, of course, they're going to be troubled. I could lose my job. If I follow Jesus, I could lose my life. I could lose my followers on Instagram. I could lose, you're telling me I could lose all these things if I side with Jesus. What is Herod and the Roman government going to do if they learn that I'm siding with this king? Out of fear, they're troubled. I think we have that same heart. If you got all of the health that you wanted, if you got all of the wealth that you wanted, if you got all of the prosperity that you wanted, you would have generally some satisfaction. But that satisfaction would be this low-grade contentment. Things would look perfect on paper. You'd be like, I've got the things. And yet, you would still be like, I'm just not there. And maybe you'd be so distracted by the pleasures of those things that you would never actually realize your hunger and thirst for real satisfaction in Christ. So then you would be having all this fun in this nasty, muddy sand pit instead of at the beach. And I know that pales in comparison, actually, to Christ and the fleeting joys the world gives. And I, and I, I know it's, it's harsh for me to say fleeting joys of like our loved ones and like our health and stuff. But the truth is, Jesus is that much greater than it. Let us not be pursuing unsatisfying contentment. John Piper says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I think that says more about God than it does about what we should do. God designed for us to be satisfied, yes. Not in those things that you 
love on the world that you can see, but in him alone. That's a satisfaction that outweighs everything and that you can't have taken away from you. That was how you're designed, and that says so much more about him than it does about what we should do because God wants you to enjoy the life he's given you, but out, out through him, the most joy you could ever feel. He knows that. That's the best for you. He wants that for you, but it does mean considering all else as loss, which is really uncomfortable and hard. Jesus is the only way to be most satisfied, and he calls us to be willing to give up our health and our wealth and our prosperity for his name, get this, joyfully. Serve the Lord with gladness. Acts 5, 40 through 42 talks about these disciples after they were preaching the name of Jesus. Uh, it says, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I will give all of the money I have in my wallet right now, which I think is $3, to the person in here who can say, I have been physically beaten because I was preaching the name of Christ and people were wanting me not to. I've never been beaten for preaching Christ. My guess is none of us have. And yet, we would stand in a place of saying, God, I've done a lot of things for you, and you should, I just, you should really come through for me on this. Many of us have been there because that's the natural tendency of our wicked hearts. Do we cherish Jesus? Or is Jesus that precious to us that we would rejoice, that we would be counted worthy among those who were beaten for his name, those who would lose things for Christ? Why? Because Jesus promises for those things that you lose, wife, mother, father, things, a hundredfold you have in heaven. I don't think it's necessarily you get those things back. I think it's that you find that in Christ. Whatever it is you loved about those things, so hundredfold more of that is in Christ. Let's continue. Verse 5. So uh, Herod asks, where is this guy supposed to be born? And then they say this. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. So he says, O Bethlehem, you're, no, you're by no means the least, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they quote Micah 5.2. They know their, their Bible. They paraphrase it a little bit. It's not exactly the same. So they bring it up. So Herod says, where is he supposed to be born? And they say, Bethlehem. It goes on, verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. So he doesn't want everybody to know. So apparently the wise men aren't just going straight to Jerusalem and straight to Herod. They're not even talking to Herod. They go in and they're talking to everybody in Jerusalem. Hey, where's this guy? If we know about him, you must know about him. And they, nobody does. So Herod, of course, secretly, because, of course, devious things are done in secret, secretly brings them in. And then what happens? He wants to ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. And uh, he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, so he... This is where he is. He's in Bethlehem. Clearly, you're not seeing that star, whatever it was earlier, anymore. So I'm telling you, go to Bethlehem, because that's where he's supposed to be. Uh, saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He has no actual desire to go and worship him. He's deceiving the wise men. And he's so pompous and arrogant that he actually believes that he deceives them. 
Otherwise, he would have sent his own soldiers or somebody with him to go and search for this king so that he could find him and then kill him. But he desires to kill him, of course not to worship him. But it looks like he really did deceive them. As it goes on, it says they listened to him. Verse 9, after listening to the king, the wise men went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Perfect. The star came back. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That sounds a little like, why, that's, why is that an obsolete statement? Like you're saying it twice? No, that we need to recognize these people who were not God's people were exceedingly joyful with great joy. We have to get it. They were so overjoyed with the fact they're going to see the coming king. Nobody in Jerusalem is excited about this. What is going on? The people we would expect are not the people God is using to go and praise him and worship him. So what is this star? Ah, we'll get to the star. Okay, timing. So he wants to ascertain what time they saw the star so that he could kind of know how old this kid is going to be. Why that matters to him, we'll find out later. But we also know at the end of this story, the wise men are not going to go back to Herod so that he can go and worship them. The angel's going to tell him, go back the scenic route because Herod just wants to, to kill. Like, so they're going to be warned by the angel. They're not going to go back. That's what we know. Well, let's skip to verse 16 because we're going to get a clue as to how long this was. It wasn't that Jesus was born and that these wise men followed a star and the night he was born found him in a manger like our nativity scenes show. So this is, this is how it actually went down. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in the, all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So what the wise men say, they probably said, well, it was about two years ago. Two years ago, we saw a star in the sky. And this whole time, we've been preparing, saving up money to buy these things, to, to tr set up a trip to travel all this way, because it's that precious and important to us that we're going to do all these things. So it's about two years. Okay, so Jesus is about two years old. It's going to change our nativity scenes just a bit. So he's about two years old. Um, and then the star reappears. What is this star, man? Like, what a cool idea. There's a star. And I would love to follow the star at the end of the rainbow to get a pot of gold. You know, like, this sounds great. What was this star? So it was either natural, like God used something natural to show them where to go, or he used something supernatural, like an angel or just like a light. Like, I think of uh, in... Uh, the times where the God's people, Israel, are, are in the promised land. They're being led to the promised land, and there's this cloud that glows. And when it's up, you know, they're moving. When it's down, they're chilling. And maybe it was something like that. Well, uh, some in Babylonian texts that people have studied, not me because I don't speak Babylon, but um, there are documents uh, of there, there being an astronomical event in 7 BC. A lot of people think it was this. Could be that this specific thing happened, that there was a... Uh, a time they knew which were planets and stars that are smarter than me because I could look up there and I'm like, that's a bright looking thing that wasn't there before. I don't know. But I don't know any of that stuff. But these people who studied and gave King's uh, advice would have known. They look up and they see Jupiter, which to them in their Babylonian text, we know this, it, it represented like the main deity of God because it's the biggest. So naturally, that makes sense. So Jupiter is right next to Saturn, which represented the Jews to the Babylonians. Babylonians, and then it's also in a constellation of Pisces, which represented Palestine, which is where Israel is. 
So God is with the Jews in Palestine. And many scholars think that must have been what it was, and that's what told them to go to Jerusalem to look in Israel for this king. Totally could have been. In fact, it happened on a very, very important date. Many of us probably know May 27th. Do you know it was, it's my birthday? <laughs> so I, anyway, the more likely case is that this was an angel. It could have been the star thing before, but it's probably an angel at a specific time. And then two years later, they see it reappear, and this angel moves and could have been that. Could have been just a light. The significance, though, is that God intentionally wanted them to go to Jerusalem and announce it. Because if he had just shown them straight to Bethlehem, they never would have. And so under God's sovereignty, they wanted that. God wanted to use them for his purposes. And God also wanted to tell everyone else, which included Herod, which then included babies having to be murdered. Like, crazy stuff. Well, I do think it's probably something more supernatural, although I would love to have been born the same day that Jesus was born. That would be cool. But let's continue on. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother. So this two-year-old, most likely sitting with his mom, sees them, and then they fell down and worshipped him. Some people in history have gotten this messed up, and they say they worship both Mary and they, just him they worshipped. They, were, they see Mary there, but they worshipped him alone. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Okay, so there we see that they're not going to go back to Herod. And we see also now they're in a house. It said that. It said, and going into the house. They're no longer in a manger. So it's actually in a house. And it was about two years later, probably. And so it seems like maybe Mary and Joseph are probably trying to set up roots there to live in Bethlehem with his people, with where his family is. But we know the story goes on. They're going to be warned not to go, uh, to get up and leaving. They're going to flee to Egypt and stay there until Herod dies. And then they're going to go to Nazareth. So we see that things kind of change. But we're thinking maybe they were going to have a permanent stay in Bethlehem at the time. Uh, but they also bring these unique gifts. If anything, we have to know these are very precious, expensive gifts. But some people think that they symbolize more about God revealing who he is in Jesus. First, gold. Gold was often given and presented to kings. So this would have been a testament to Jesus being king. Second, frankincense. Frankincense was an uh, uh, incense that was burned often for, at the temple for worship of God. So they give frankincense in the recognition of Jesus being God. Myrrh. I've never heard of myrrh other than like this. Maybe you have because you guys are like young living and like doTERRA people and you, myrrh is one of the oil things. But myrrh um, in, in Babylon, they didn't uh, uh, embalm people in, in Israel, but in Babylon they would embalm people with myrrh. So they bring this myrrh, which is a nice smelling thing. Apparently I've never smelled it. Um, they bring this nice smelling thing and present it to Jesus to not just testify with gold that he's king, not just testify he's God with frankincense, but that he's going to die for the sins of the world with myrrh. I think this could absolutely be a wonderful symbol for how, why they chose these gifts. Or maybe they just chose these gifts because they were very precious and they knew that Jesus deserved precious gifts. That's most likely the case. So this brings up a a question, which is, why, why, why this story in the Bible? The other gospel accounts don't have it. 
For some reason, Matthew thinks it's integral to the theological reasons as to why he would write this. We learn from the author, uh, the Apostle John, as he writes, if I were to write everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to hold it. So we know he, there had to be some form of editing to see for a specific reason. He wouldn't just waste the space. Why would he talk about some random Joe Schmoes coming from a really far off country to present precious gifts to Jesus? Costly, precious gifts. Is it simply for the facts to know how things happen so that you could know for a fact that Jesus did live? Or are there deeper reasons? I think there's two strong intentions. The first intention is that God reveals himself to those whom he chooses, not those whom we would expect. That's the first. The second intention is that Jesus is the single most precious gift the world has ever known. And then to all the world. Not just to one specific part of the world, not one specific type of people. There is no look to the people of God. The people of God has everything to do with your heart. First, God reveals himself to those whom he chooses, not to those whom we would expect. The leaders of God's chosen people, and seemingly holy religious people, leaders, were troubled at the arrival of Jesus. They didn't go to worship him. Gentile pagan stargazers, probably tree-hugging people, they were the ones that went and announced to Jesus, or announced to Jerusalem, Jesus' arrival. Many people, like these religious leaders, expect they are close to God because they do all the things. They have the coffee mugs with the Bible verses on them. They have uh, been born in Kansas and they drive a pickup. So naturally, they're closer to Jesus. People think these things because we've, we've developed our ideas about who God is from what people tell us, from what we've seen, instead of just looking to the word to find out where it's, what's actually there. It says in Isaiah 29, 13 through 14, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips. Lord, I praise you all the time. I go and I sing in church all the time. With their hearts, or while their hearts are far from me. When they're praising the Lord, are they feeling with it? Is there, are they genuinely to their heart and their core being moved? And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, not by God. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, not because of them, but because of me. And, with, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the, discerning of their discern, uh, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. It won't be them who are wise, but the wise men from another place. I'll bring up who I want to bring up. Their hearts are far from me. I'm not going to use them for this. This passage is a very good reminder for us to ask ourselves, are our hearts far from Jesus? Do we desire Jesus above all else? Above all else. Because when we do lip service, but our hearts are far, God will just raise up other people in our stead to do his work and to praise his name. Because his name will be praised. Jesus even says when he's coming into Jerusalem in the last uh, week of his human life before he dies and is resurrected, he says, if these didn't say these things, the rocks would cry out. God will be praised. Jesus will be praised with genuine rendered hearts, cheerfully, gladfully, not just, well, I did the things. Do we delight in God and his glory above all else, or would God raise someone else in our stead? We should ask ourselves that often. Take inventory there. 
The second intention, Jesus is the single most precious gift to all the world. These wise men traveled a long way over a long time and gave very expensive gifts. If they did come from Persia, they either came from Persia or Syria because it was east. If they came from, from, from Babylon, they would have come 900 miles, like on foot or on like camel, which I'm sure, I don't know, I'm, I think I rode a camel at the, at the zoo once. It's not the most comfortable place to be riding. They did 900 miles if they came from Babylon. A long way to travel. And they brought precious gifts that would have been very costly to them. This mattered enough for them to leave their lives. Think of you leaving all the things going on in your life right now for two years. Or at least preparing and then leaving, which it probably would have taken months and months to get there. But they probably were preparing for two years. Going to put a halt to all the things. i got to tend to my fantasy league. I've got to... You would have to leave all of that. These wise men knew that Jesus was precious. I don't know if they knew how precious, like God the Son precious, but they knew he was precious, and so they brought costly, precious gifts. How do we know that we delight in Jesus or find Jesus precious to us above all else? How do we know? How do I take inventory properly? Well, Jesus becomes the most precious thing in the world. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. It says as they present, they open up their treasures and gave them. Do we present these treasures, these things that we treasure that are not Jesus to Jesus because we treasure Jesus more? That's how I can take inventory if he is the most precious thing in the world. The most precious gift, Jesus, must be proclaimed to all the world so that others can also enjoy in delighting in the person of Jesus with us, but also, more importantly, that he, his name might be uh, magnified more in all the world. Why? Because he deserves it, rightfully. This isn't a magnification of a microscope, which makes small things look bigger. This is a magnification of a telescope, which helps me see things for what they truly are, large, that are far away or that I can see better. We want to magnify Christ to show how big he truly is. We do this because he deserves it, not because we want to or because it's convenient, because it won't be convenient, and at times it will mean sacrificing wealth, health, and prosperity. It was not religious Jewish people that announced the coming king. But God's people are not people who just do holy things. God's people are people who have faith in Jesus and come to him. God's people have no look. They don't look a specific way. They have no job. They have no specific thing. God takes those who have rendered hearts, and he renders those hearts to himself. It is not enough that we simply say with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We must also have hearts that believe. The heart feels it is moved. Psalm 73, 25 through 26. Whom have I in heaven but you, God? There is none or nothing on this earth I desire besides you, Lord. Then I love this. My heart and my flesh, they may fail. They will fail. But you, God, you, God, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do we want Jesus as our portion, or do we want Jesus as our portion and our portion of some other things too? I'd also like a portion of this serving and that serving. Jesus is not a buffet. I would like my portion of also being successful in my business, 
or I would also like my portion of having enough money to be comfortable and secure. I would also like my portion of being healthy so I have less pain or less problems. Is Jesus our portion above all else? And all of those other things we recognize are still his and we've laid them at his feet. If the Lord brings me to be prosperous, wonderful. If he takes it away the next day, wonderful. Is that where our hearts are? Because that would give us the most joy because it would be found in him alone. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field in joy. He doesn't do it like, oh, well, I guess, I guess I should do this, right? Like, I guess I should, no, in joy. He's like, take it all. I want this treasure. Is that the style of heart that we have? That, is that how we, how we find Jesus most precious to us? It should, it should move our hearts and our emotions. We should feel in this. Like, my wife is precious to me. I look at her and I'm moved. I don't just see her and I'm like, cool. Like, no. <laughs> I, I see my bride and I'm like, that is, the, my, that is God's favor on me. I look at her face and I'm like, yes. This woman is my other half, man. And like, my one flesh. I find her precious. And when I look at Jesus, it, I better have an even more moved heart. I find Jesus even more precious than that. And I like Hannah a lot more than I like all of you. <laughs> Are we willing to give up everything to follow Jesus? Because you can't follow Jesus without giving up everything. William Sidney Porter, has anybody heard the name? He went by the pen name O. Henry. Does anybody know that name? He's a short story writer. Um, he wrote a Christmas story, and I have kind of a shortened, I was reading one of my Bible commentaries, and this story came up, and I'm like, oh, that's good. So I thought I'd read it to us. So here it is. Uh, she had a habit of saying silent prayers about the simplest everyday things. And now she whispered, please, God, make him still think I'm pretty. What heart-wrenching words. Stella's knee-length cascading beautiful brown hair was her most prized possession. But she has just cut it off to sell to a wig maker. She does it so she will have money to buy her beloved husband, Jim, a Christmas present. With the money from the sale of her hair, she will be able to buy a gold watch chain on which Jim can hang his most prized possession, the gold watch that had been his father's and grandfather's. Adela and Jim are a newlywed couple who subsist in near poverty. They have little money for finery in their hovel of an apartment, let alone the extravagant Christmas gifts. Without knowing what she has done, Jim will be coming home on Christmas Eve to find Della shorn of her beautiful hair, all to buy a gold chain for him that he could not possibly afford to buy for himself. Will he still think her to be pretty? But in a tear-jerking twist... In this classic story told by O. Henry, we learn that Jim has sold his cherished watch to buy her a set of tortoise shell combs with jeweled rims for her beautiful hair. The very set she has yearned over for so long but can never hope to buy herself. Della now has cropped her hair, but with the finest gift for her young husband could sacrifice to buy. And Jim now has no watch, 
but with the most precious gift his young bride could sacrifice to bring to him for Christmas. Oh, Henry muses at the end of this story. This is what he says. Here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that all who give gifts, these are the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are the wisest, everywhere they are the wisest, they are the magi. Jesus himself is the single most precious gift to all the world and deserves the most precious praise above all else, costly to us. Why? You didn't have anything you could give him to begin with. Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Jesus gives you life, gives you things. Why? So you can lay them back at his feet. Even the most precious things we could give to him were gifts he's given to us. It's a delusion for us to think they're actually ours. It's still his. The God of the universe emptied himself by taking on the form of a human servant. This alone is unfathomably costly. God in heaven leaves the comforts of heaven to become man. So now Jesus, being sustainer of the universe, while also being this this baby that needs his mother's milk, at the same time he's needing his mom and yet sustaining her life. This incredibly costly thing that he would live this 33 years but doesn't stop to be humbled that far but goes even further. If that wasn't enough, he'll go and die a horrid death on a cross. Why? So that you and I might be his cherished beloved. We don't get to exalt ourselves and not take the same path Christ took. We needed Jesus to pay our bill because we could not afford it. Now, for those who have faith in Jesus, there is life everlasting that can never be lost because Jesus did it, not us. Jesus is the one who did it. A.W. Tozer says that if you find yourself a sinner, you find yourself in good company. For Jesus died for sinners and ungodly. This is from Romans 5 and 6 through 8 that he's quoting. Perhaps it's you, like me at many times in my life, perhaps it's you that you're like, I want to desire God that way. Like I do. Like I do. I want to desire God that way. I just don't. I wake up in the morning and I like go to work, you know? Like I wake up in the morning and I like figure out what I got to do that day because I got a lot of stuff to do. I wake up in the morning and I'm like getting in the word is kind of like a chore. I know it's the way that God revealed himself to us that we could know him and live for him, and be most satisfied through his word to know him. I know that, but it's kind of a chore. It's just not as nice as throwing on that uh, great British baking show or sitting back and relaxing with a glass of wine and reading my other book or something, watching some silly show. Maybe you might be like saying it's really hard to get up in the morning and just pray and spend some time with the Lord because I kind of like to just lay in bed. It's nice. Maybe you're like this. I serve God all the time. I just don't know what it means to serve him with gladness. God, I do all these things for you. In fact, I get really tired doing them, and I'm exhausted by it. How do do I get that to be gladness? There's hope. If any of that resides with you, there's hope. Because the joy that God gives, notice, it's a gift. Um, Galatians 5.22 says that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. That means it's not a fruit of you willing it up. 
So it's a gift. God has to give it. But it also is something that we work for. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says that we have to be joyful always. We're commanded to. So somehow, something that we can't control, we're being commanded to do it. But it's also a gift that God has to give us. So who, who's the one who brings it? Is it God or is it me? Yes. It's both. If it were easy, we wouldn't be commanded to work for it. When you're sitting in the moment where it gets real and somebody close to you has passed. Or it gets real to you when you've learned that you've lost your health. Or you've lost all the money because in 2008 you were all tied up in the housing market. Or when you lose all of the status that you had for some reason that had to do with you falling over with Christ. Whether in this next 10 years, 15 years, that's going to happen. You say you're with Christ and what he says. You believe in the biblical sexual ethic. You believe in God's design for male and female. Are you willing to lose your status? Are you willing to lose a job? There's a bill being passed that doesn't protect churches for, for, doing, like, for the same sex protection thing, marriage. If you side with, the, with what scripture says, are you willing to face that consequence and do it joyfully? Maybe it's not even 10 years. Joy is a gift, and yet we labor for it. Uh, let us pray that God builds this fire of joy in our heart. And let us seek after it with all our heart to be satisfied in him through his word. Uh, the second person the Trinity became man and dwelt among us. This is the single greatest gift because... It is a gift that resulted in our salvation, but Jesus deserved that costly, precious praise before he went to the cross. I pray God tears our hearts to truly understand what has been given and delight in this, this Christmas season. So how might this message apply to my life, Trey? Fraley, how does it apply to my life? Let me tell you, I got a challenge. You can think it's silly, that's fine. If you're married, I'll, if you're not married, I'll get to you in a second. If you're married... Uh, you've probably felt this or experienced this, or maybe you've heard many people talk about this marriage tug of war. There's like this, I'm, I'm trying to get my spouse to realize all the needs that I have so that they can meet them. So I ask for it often. And it's this constant tension that just never lets up. It often leads in one or both people quitting. It's just like, please let me, and it's almost like we need to take some things so that they can recognize our needs. For the next month, so until January 11th, if you're married, don't ask for anything. Just one month. Well, if I don't ask him, then he's not going to do it. If I don't ask her to do this, then she'll never know. One month. Just try it. One month. Don't ask for anything. Instead, ask yourself what needs your spouse has that you can provide and do them. One month. I don't think it's too much to ask. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be hard because we are narcissistic and we like for people to care for our needs. I, and so if you're not married, if you're a sibling or you have roommates or a parent or you have kids and you're not married, tell them you will not this one month ask them for anything, but you will only be asking yourself what you can provide for them. I... God says it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. As our marriages and lives are more characterized by giving, like Christ displayed, than by taking, 
I guarantee you, you're going to find yourself more satisfied. And satisfaction in marriage is cool, but let that, that alone is like nothing. Let that point you to what's most satisfying in the person of Jesus and seek after him. If you lose everything, you still have but joy because it's a gift that Jesus promises and John 17 can never be taken from you. So don't give it away. You have to labor for it, but it's also a gift from the Lord. And if we don't get this, if we're not moved by this, if we're not overjoyed in Christ, I don't know if that's believing in your heart that he is Lord. You can't say in the same sentence, yes, I'm a Christian, but Jesus isn't the most precious thing to me. That's not what a believer would say. Maybe you could say it because your, your words don't line up with what's true, but it, for you to follow Christ, what that means is that he is your most prized possession. He is your portion. That means you don't take any of the other portions. Every other thing is still his. You give it back to him. I want our hearts to be that this Christmas season. That's my prayer. That's my hope. Uh, we're going to move into communion. I'm going to invite the band up, and if you're a... Um, Serving communion, you can come up. When we take communion, what we're doing is remembering the cross. But we're also, we're professing to ourselves and to everyone around that we're one with Jesus and that we're one with each other. So as we take the communion elements, take a moment before you take it to really sit there and think, Lord, what things have I put in my life above you? What things have been more cherished to me than you? Confess those things. Maybe it is your spouse. If you're married to Hannah, you would get it. Or maybe it is something. Whatever it is, take that moment to just sit there and, Lord, I've been holding a little too tightly to this. I'm going to open up my hands and give it back to you. Help me continue. You may have to do that multiple times this week. But as you take the elements and you become and you recognize and remember you're one with Christ and one with his church, let us make sure that we're also doing it in a heart of repentance and not a heart of clinging to things we shouldn't be clinging to. Um, also, I might just add this. If you're not a Christian and you're hearing this, or maybe you're like, oh my gosh, this is stirring up in me some things. Don't leave without us let it, like praying for you. We would love to pray for you in this. If you're, if you're right now like, yes, I do want to follow after Christ. We're going to have people up here going to be praying. Let us pray for you. But also, if you're not a Christian and you're not like, you're like, that's just not for me, that's fine. We just ask you don't take the elements because then you would be betraying your confidence or your conscience. You'd be betraying your conscience because it's professing that you're one with Christ and one with the church. Let me pray for us as we... As we close, Heavenly Father, I thank you for the word that you've given us that we might know you and not be aimless to figure out who you are or what you would call us to. Lord, I do pray your blessing on us as we go into this week, and I pray that you might stir up in us a heart that cherishes you and finds you way more precious than any health we could have, any wealth that we could have, or any prosperity that we could have. But instead, Lord, let us cling to you, counting all as what Paul would say, dumb so that we could have you. Lord Jesus, I pray you would show up in a magnificent way. Lord, give us bold prayers in the midst of that. Um, and I also just pray, Lord, that we might uh, grow as a church because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.
did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on waters? Mommy, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you
Amen. Thank you very much for being with us today and worshiping with us. Uh, let me uh, pray this prayer and this blessing and this charge over us as we go. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forevermore. God bless you all. Have a great week. Go out and live all of life all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.